Dip your toes into any conversation around diversity in video gaming and you'll see that it suffers from pretty much the same lack of representation as other forms of popular entertainment. Do a quick Google search and you'll soon learn that the vast majority of main protagonists in games are male, with just a little over 8% of main characters being non-white females. This is unsurprising given that the industry traditionally projects an image that is young, straight, white and male. But the problem is, not everyone who plays games are young, straight, white or identify as male. So where do they see themselves in the games that they play? How do they feel included in a space that they might love, but never feel truly accepted into? This is a status quo that this episode's guest is working hard to change. Diana is a gaming influencer and content creator who would love to see video games actually reflect the vast diversity of their players and for everyone to feel like they can play games without any barriers. Before we dive into that discussion though, we start with her background as a Malaysian person of Sri Lankan descent and all the nuances that that entails. Maybe take me back to the beginning. So you you were born in Malaysia, but your family had actually been there for generations, right? Yeah, so my I believe it's my grandparents forward um were all born and raised in Malaysia. Everyone before that um, were essentially from Sri Lanka and then obviously even further back were from India. So there's been a history of migration <laughs> amongst my family. Yeah, yeah. Do you know why your family moved from Sri Lanka? Yeah, I would suspect. I mean, obviously I can't confirm this because it's like my great great grandparents or oh no sorry my great grandparents um, who I never right? met <laughs> yeah. um I was I was pretty much told stories that you know at the time when my grandparents were born or rather actually no not again confusing great grandparents were born sorry it was a time of I guess war and conflict in Sri Lanka between the two main races the Sikhs and the Hindus or the Tamils rather you know there was a great deal of civil war happening to the point where it was just not a country that a uh, was you know a country where you want to live because you're in a war zone. Uh, B, it wasn't a country with opportunities for kids. And so I think um, the reason why they moved out is because they really had no choice. If they stayed, they were either going to, you know, be killed or be drafted into the war or for the women and children even worse. So I, I think that there was, a you know, really a case of there was this new country where, a lot of, you know, a lot of Indians and Sri Lankans were moving to and they kind of felt, you know, hey, for the sake of our family, we need to uh, go there. And a, and a lot of my family, from what I've heard, went as refugees. So they didn't really have that uh, whole mindset of let's move countries just like you would nowadays with, you know, there's a better opportunity over there, let's move. It was really a case of leave everything, hop on a boat and go. It's interesting just hearing you explain the story. Like, 
I don't feel like that particular narrative has changed all that much, even though that would have been like many years ago for your family. Like I still feel like those are essentially some of the main reasons why people leave their homelands to seek better opportunities to escape war and conflict Mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff. I do definitely find it really bizarre that, you know, it's now almost a century later that, Places like India and Sri Lanka, there's still that element of the life still being the same, you know, in terms of opportunities, in terms of that kind of backward thinking of, you know, girls should stay at home and be wives and stay in the kitchen and that sort of thing. That that mentality is still very active. I mean, I'm definitely very lucky that um, I grew up, I was born and grew up in a country that was better than Sri Lanka. Not to say that it's the best country to be raised in, um, because Malaysia has its own issues and its own prejudices and all sorts of things when it comes to being not part of the top two or top three races in the country. So whilst I'm very lucky, at the same time, there's just so many things about Malaysia that was so wrong and is still so wrong. Do you miss life in Malaysia at all? I miss life as a child in Malaysia. I think um, my childhood in Malaysia was amazing. It's something that I regularly think about. Maybe it was the timing as well. Like I grew up in the 90s where it was still safe to play outside on the road with the other kids or go to the parks without, you know, too much supervision. I really enjoyed growing up there and the life I had with my extended family. So, you know, my uncles, my mom's brothers um, are really, really close knit and they essentially helped raise me. So I spent a lot of my time, you know, learning about movies and comic books and gaming and and all the things that I'm really interested in now um, back there. And I think that closeness with family is something I'm really passionate about and I really love and I've definitely lacked that moving to New Zealand and now in Australia. So I would definitely love to have that but not in Malaysia if that makes sense. Mm. What is it that stops you from wanting to have that in Malaysia? Uh, Well first of all my skin color and my race uh, would put me at a disadvantage first and foremost when it comes to jobs, when it comes to education, when it comes to any opportunity to just get ahead in life or or even make a living. I'm actually very privileged in the fact that I'm a lighter skinned Sri Lankan than most. You know, growing up, um, one of the things that I absolutely hated were Older people, my relatives included, would come to me and go, oh, my gosh, look at you. You're so fair and beautiful. You should be a model. And I was overweight at the same time as a kid because I just didn't run and do any activities. (laughs) Um, And, you know, at the same time, they'd be like, oh, but you put on weight. Oh, you're looking a bit tubby. And I was like 10 or or Mm. under. And it's like, why would you say that to a child? It, you know, it pits you against others and, and you have that mindset of, oh, my God, I can't do anything other than lose weight, but I can't change the color of my skin. Uh, my sister, who is a lot darker than I am, who is so much taller and skinnier than I am, 
was it's told, oh, you need to, you know, stop going out in the sun and just stay inside. Otherwise, you're going to end up darker than you already are and no one will want to marry you and uh, you can't be a model like your sister. And at the same time, they look at me and go, you need to lose weight. Look how skinny your sister and brother are. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm just a kid. Let me have fun. It's so, so toxic, that, right? Oh, 100%. I, till today, have a complex about my weight. Not to the point where like I'm actively, you know, obsessed about it or anything like that. But there are times when, you know, I'll always look at myself in the mirror and go, am I perfect? Am I perfect enough to be accepted by people outside? You know, am I going to be judged when I walk out the door, even to go to the supermarket? I refuse to go without doing my hair properly or without having some form of makeup. I wouldn't ever be on camera if I'm someone who just got out of bed. I will never do that because of that whole perception in Malaysia that to be successful, you need to be perfect in looks, in in, in intelligence, in every factor of life. And that is so detrimental to the development of children. It's so toxic. It really um, puts that idea that you're never going to be good enough no matter what you do. And it also comes back to the whole in Malaysia, especially with Sri Lankan families, if you're not in those uh, career paths like, you know, lawyer, doctor, engineer, accountant, those professional career paths, you're never going to be successful. And so, you know, someone like me who absolutely had no idea what I wanted to do other than the fact that I was super passionate about pop culture and gaming and entertainment. I was essentially brainwashed into thinking I had to be a doctor. I had to be a lawyer to the point that I spent eight years at uni trying to do something that I had no passion for. I did it, got my degree, gave it to my parents, gave it to my grandparents and said, I've done it. Now leave me alone. I'm going to do my own thing. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Well, I, I hate that you had to go on that journey because I can so relate to that as well. Like I spent like six years or five years, whatever it was, at law school hating every single moment of it because I thought that's what my parents wanted out of me. Like, it, like you know, the whole doing things for your family or for your parents, for their approval, it's, it's so toxic and... I'm so glad that you were able to find your own passions and follow your own path though after that. What was your family's reaction when you were like, okay, bye, I'm going to do my own thing? (laughs) Um, My immediate family were fine. My parents are actually very open-minded and they have always been the kind of parent who, um, parents rather, who were very open-minded in the sense of allowing me to do what I enjoyed because at the end of the day, they did what their parents expected them to do and they knew what that hardship looked like and what that felt like. And so especially my dad, he'd always tell me, you know, just do what makes you happy because the money will come. Um, That was something that he used to say almost every day when we moved to New Zealand because, you know, in Malaysia, it was another story. (laughs) Um, And, you know, that was really important for me because I developed the mindset of work to live, not live to work. I would never just slog and do something that I didn't enjoy just for the sake of making money. I mean, I, I'm happy just to 
make ends meet to pay my bills and that's it. So my parents were really very open to it. They were very encouraging. Um, I suspect a l- both of them actually potentially in the back of their minds were like, oh, oh, we better have some backup in place just in case she fails. But I didn't. So that's good. <laughs> no, you're and, very much um, not failing. Or it, it was a struggle to not fail <laughs> um, and maintain and make sure that I was doing okay enough to pay my bills. Um, you know, I, I won't lie. It has been a really tough couple of years trying to do what I'm passionate about. But yeah, it was a, it was really easy with my parents, but it was really hard to convince my grandparents and my extended family. Till today, my grandfather has no idea what I do. And he just goes, oh, you work in media. Do you, you write for the newspaper? I'm like, no. <laughs> mm, it must be a generation thing as well, right? Just yeah. not having the broader context um, and understanding of the wider world and how it works, especially nowadays. It must be so confronting mm. because so much has happened yeah. in such a short amount of time. Um I want to go back to something that you said earlier about the fact that like your ethnicity and like the color of your skin, how that impacts on your livelihood in Malaysia. So are you able to explain a bit more about the degree to which ethnicity is so important in Malaysian society and also the segregation that results as a part of that? Yeah. So in Malaysia, we were kind of raised to learn the system, which is you've got the Malays who are essentially your boomy putra is what they call it, which is like your people of the land, even though they weren't there first. History has shown that the Malays weren't there first, but, you know, they are the priority, I suppose, in terms of universities, there's always a quota set aside for them. Um, there's, it's, you know, in terms of hiring, preference is always given to them, uh, despite the fact they may not have the grades or may not have the experience. You know, it's always a case of they come first, they get everything. You have to essentially work twice as hard to get to where they are. Then obviously it comes the next level, which is the Chinese Malaysians. And now the Chinese Malaysians are traditionally very successful and they, you know, are the businessmen, own all their own businesses. And they're very, I guess, skilled and talented at working the system. <laughs> and so they, they don't need that, that government support or they don't need that, um, yeah, that, that country's support to build themselves up. They just do their own thing. And then you've got the third tier, which are your Indian Malaysians, meaning Indians from India. So I, me being Sri Lankan, I'm not part of that group. So I'm lower than the lowest tier, <laughs> which is really weird. But I'm kind of in that weird spot where my entire family are lower than the lowest tier. But because I'm super fair, I get raised above to almost sit between the Chinese and the Indians because of my fairness. Mm. Bearing in mind, I can never go out in the sun because as soon as it gets darker, (laughs) that's it. So it's things like that growing up where I was just like, but why? You know, like my my dad is really fair skinned. So he and I were always like this class above my mum and my siblings because they were darker 
and you know the rest of my family and it's like well that makes no sense we we share the same blood with the same people we are the same family we come from the same place what kind of dynamic did that create within your family with part of your family being lighter skinned and part of your family being darker skinned so with my immediate family it didn't really change anything like we are a super tight knit family there were no comparisons between us or anything like that like my parents were really good to not compare child versus child <laughs> it was always child versus cousin or distant relative or friend of a friend but never pitting us against each other which i am super super proud of them for doing that because a lot of families do um so with us it was really fine but there was a lot of conflict in terms of the wider family um i can tell you honestly there are certain members in my family who i refuse to see because i personally think they're bullies like you said earlier it's so toxic it really causes that rift between family members it also ingrains in children a lot of trauma which i think like you may not even realize that you've held on to until much later yeah being very transparent and honest i've had to go to therapy to talk through some of my core beliefs because i didn't realize that growing up yes all of these things have played a part in how i approach life and how i see myself as a human being i'm extremely hard on myself no matter what i do i'm never good enough and it's not because i feel i'm not good enough it's because of that core belief that was developed from a young age you know where i i constantly haven't achieved because nothing i do is ever good enough as as an adult now i can identify that and i can talk about it and i certainly know that you know any kids that i have in future will never have to worry about that because i've been through that and i understand the kind of language you use around kids are so important was there a point where you stopped caring about achieving and being perfect and sort of striving for perfection no <laughs> <laughs> not even after you finished your degree and then decided to do your own thing? No, and I think that's potentially why I'm always so busy and working all the time to mm. achieve the next thing because I'm never satisfied. <laughs> not not because I'm just not satisfied with what I'm doing, but I just feel like, you know, I have been set up in in my mind to consider myself as someone who has so much more to offer and that I've never really truly given my best even though I have I know I have you know I've had burnouts to prove that I've worked up to my limit um but as constantly that voice that goes oh but you've done this now what's what's the next thing what can you do that's going to top that I mean obviously it's been a blessing because that push has helped me achieve so much but at the same time that little voice is really annoying and it i have to literally consciously stop myself and go no <laughs> it's yeah. okay take a break do you think you'll ever be able to silence that voice i would like to think so i know definitely the the lockdown in particular here in melbourne has definitely helped with that because i've just been so over it over over everything really that i've just not cared about achieving anything or doing anything So it's kind of made me more aware of 
how I think about things, how I approach things, how I look at things, and my reactions to those things. So you mentioned that you play games. (laughs) I'd Mm -hmm. love to learn how you got into pop culture and gaming, and you're also into anime as well, right? Mm -hmm. Very much so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess it would have been when I was a kid in Malaysia, like I grew up around my uncles who were all unmarried at the time, and they were all playing video games and just kind of watching lots of movies and reading comics and things like that. So I was very exposed to that from a young age um even my mom being the tomboy that she was or is I don't know I haven't spoken to her in a while oh no (laughs) Um, (laughs) call your mom (laughs) yeah I should really (laughs) um she you know she was very much into all those kinds of action movies and and doing silly things like cartwheels in the house even though she was like 30 plus years old. Um, So I think from a young age, I was very exposed to that side of entertainment. So pop culture, comic books, uh, not so much anime. In fact, I was actually very much against anime as a pure cartoon lover. And I say pure cartoons as in like, you know, the old school Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon and all of those kinds of cartoons. But I think somewhere along the line, it would have just clicked in me that I I was naturally talented in these areas. Um, I used to write fan fiction uh, <laughs> because I didn't like certain TV shows and the storylines that were happening, so I'd write my own. Yeah, nice. <laughs> and, you know, it kind of took off from there because um, I developed a really strong skill set when it came to writing. I did law, so that helped as well, and... Um, I was very much exposed to media, I guess, and, you know, the entertainment space. And I was very amazed at how few of us, meaning Asians, there were uh, in the Western entertainment. And so to me, I just naturally fell into it. Um, I set up a blog to write about films that I both liked and didn't like. Um, I started it because I absolutely hated a Fantastic Four reboot movie and I needed to vent my frustrations being a Marvel fan. You know, it kind of just trickled on from there. I just started writing about games, started writing about anime and then streaming, naturally progressing to creating content on social media and podcasting and all of that and kind of ended up here like you know I've I've never really expected to do anything in this space it was more like I just wanted to vent online (laughs) yeah (laughs) nice um I love that journey for you (laughs) and it's a funny story to tell (laughs) (laughs) um okay so you basically started all of this because it was just stuff that you love to do and then it just ended up being such a huge it, it plays such a huge part of your life now right like so you you've got your mm. job job but then you've also got mm-hmm. like your gaming stuff and yeah when I say gaming stuff or rather when we talk about gaming stuff can you explain a bit about like all the things that you do with regards to gaming and pop culture because you also cre- you, you you created these communities right like I saw that mm-hmm. you created like an Xbox community just for women and gaming and Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you and your partner also have something as well. Yeah, so um, again, it's something that I can never really pinpoint why 
all these different things have kind of come about because a lot of it has just been going with the flow and just going with what I'm passionate with at any given time and, and just me wanting to just do it. Trying to do anything in games as a woman of color is, especially here in Australia and New Zealand, it's so hard because you just don't see anyone like that publicly. So for me, it was a case of, well, I'm just going to do it. If it does well, it does well. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And so when I started writing um, gaming reviews, I was just doing it because A, I just wanted to play different games and B, my blog had already grown so much that it just made sense to include gaming into it, um, especially given the fact that my partner was really keen on being a streamer and being gaming influencer of sorts. So I was like, here you go. I've set up this blog. It's got all of this uh, space, readership, viewership, what have you why don't you join me on this adventure and we can do it together. And so we started doing Attack on Geek together, which is my main brand and my baby, so to speak. Um, you know, we've kind of catered it towards a very community-focused brand. And it's, it's all about a couple's journey in games, I suppose, which you don't normally see. You, you normally see one or the other. You don't see both, you know, both members of the couple uh, playing games together or enjoying unboxings or whatever together and we did that mostly also to give us something to do that was not expensive <laughs> because at the time you know we were both struggling with our first jobs and trying to earn a decent living and things like that and we just didn't want to go out on fancy dates or anything so it's like ah here's something we can do together and it kind of grew from there to the point where we started streaming together we started doing a lot of um, community events as well. And I think, you know, that whole experience with meeting people online and then meeting them in real life, it just opened me up to this whole new world that I've realized like, you know what, this, this is where I was meant to be. It allowed me to feel that sense of belonging, that some sense of welcoming, um, because the people in my specific community are people who are very much open-minded. They're very welcoming. They're very open to the fact that I'm a terrible gamer, but they're still there <laughs> watching me <laughs> and supporting me, you know, throughout my journey. I guess I really enjoy psychology as well. I love understanding how people's minds work and what makes them tick, what makes them do what they do, which is why I'm now in marketing. <laughs> so I started seeing, you know, all these different communities and how they enjoy games and the challenges that they faced to play games. And to me, as someone who is very pri privileged to enjoy games um, from a very young age, it felt very tough to, to see people go, oh, I know I can't afford playing this game or I can't do that because I'm not a guy. Um, and that started becoming a common theme. I started talking to a lot of girls and a lot of women who would say that, oh, I don't really think I can play this game because it's a game for boys or no, I don't want to play because I don't know any other women who play. Um, I used to teach uh, kids how to stream and kind of play games collaboratively at a technology lounge, which was like an after-school program. And the turning point for me was when this girl, uh, her brother and her mum, came into the center to sign up for a program and the boy just ran into the Xboxes with all these other boys he'd never met before and started playing. And the mum turned to the daughter and was like, oh, you know, do you want to 
join your brother. I can sign you up for a few classes. And she just looked around the room and I kind of looked at her and she was just like, no, there are no other girls here. And I was just like, so crushed because I was there <laughs> personally. Um, I would play with you. Um, it's just, it, it was that, that little moment of seeing her just be so dejected at the fact that it was just all boys that made me realize that, okay, there's definitely a problem here. And if no one else was going to do anything about it, because I was actively in other women in games communities and, you know, learning from others about what we can do to get more girls into gaming locally, nothing was being done really um, to, to really make the space welcoming and uh, open to younger girls. Yes. There were communities who were like, you know, Hey, we're girls, we play games. And by girls, I mean, you know, in their twenties and older, um, there's no, there wasn't really anyone focusing on the younger generation. And I think that's something that is so important and so lacking is, you know, as a society, we talk about the next generation in terms of life and, and global warming and all of those things. But what about entertainment? What about gaming? What about all these other industries that mold children, you know, like magazines constantly teach children they have to be a certain size or a certain look, you know, all your tabloids and things like that. The film industry consistently have white Caucasian heroes up until now with Shang-Chi, which is why it's done so well, because it's like, hey, finally, we've got, you know, an Asian superhero. So things like that really is something that's lacking here in Australia and New Zealand. And I felt like, well, if no one else is going to do it, then I'm just going to do it and hope for the best and do everything I can to make it work. So I created Women of Xbox as a global initiative um, to bring women together from all walks of life, just to support one another, have that space, that safe space where there were not going to be any men, there were not going to be any other uh, genders other than maybe non-binary and so women could really feel like the space was for them and that they can really feel empowered to do what they love and by doing so hope my hope is that they will be comfortable being public about their passions and therefore being open to maybe speaking with the younger generation or showing the younger generation like hey I'm here I exist I'm doing it so can you and, you know, because I've started doing that, that kind of now has shifted towards the BIPOC society and the community as well, where it was like, well, yes, we don't have a lot of women in games. We have even less women of color in games. <laughs> so, you know, for me, my passion now, it's it's not so much about making content and working with brands to get paid to make content and getting free gifts and things. I mean, I love it. I will do all kinds of unboxings and videos and all of that. I do love it. But my focus now is on the next generation. I think it's so, so, so important, especially I think going back to my roots with how Malaysia and my parents and my family have kind of impacted how I think throughout my life and even now as an adult, it's so important to start young and teach kids that it's okay to do what they love that it's okay to pursue their passions yeah like to give some context because in case listeners aren't so familiar with like the gaming world in your words and in your perspective how important is it to have that 
diversity and not just diversity of gender, but like diversity across the board in gaming and not just in terms of people who play, but in terms of people who create the games as well? Mm. Well, I mean, gaming is an activity that there really isn't any barrier to it. I mean, maybe financially, but other than that, there's no prerequisite to be a gamer. You just play a game, have fun, you know? And I think that's so important because if everyone is allowed to play and if everyone can play, then why is the community so focused on one core demographic or why is the marketing so focused on um, having just one Caucasian playing a video game as part of their advertising. Shouldn't we be open to, you know, uh, showcasing everyone who plays games? Because there are even people who are legally blind playing games. It's possible, you know, um, but they're never shown because for some r- r- reason or other, it's here's this one demographic, they are the core uh, audience when it comes to gaming. Therefore, we're just going to stick with the status quo. And I think, you know, in terms of even the game developers, how are you going to create a game that has the true feeling and sense of human beings as a whole if you're just looking at it from one point of view, which may often be a very privileged view? I'll give you an example of a game. There's a game called Raji that um, came out I think last month and it was basically developed in India by an Indian development developer. And it's all about the South Asian, South Indian specifically uh, mythology, like the Hindu mythology. And it's all about this young Tamil girl who goes around uh, completing adventures and puzzles and things like that. Now imagine if a Caucasian person made that game. Would that game be something a Tamil woman picks up and goes, yeah, this, this, I really identify with this game. It feels like I'm enjoying this game. No, it doesn't work like that, you know? So when it comes to games and having those big games with a multitude of characters with so many different stories and backgrounds, you can't just have one demographic making it. You need to have this perspective of a variety of people from all walks of life, because then you'll have a game that's that's whole, if you may, if that makes sense. Um, so I think in that sense, you know, it's not just about making the game; it's about marketing the game. It's about the community you build as well. I mean, if you're just, for example, if you're a developer who's got a team of just white men, how are you going to attract the women? How are you going to attract other Um, races from other countries are you going to market the game as being a really expensive hundred dollar title that no one from low uh, low income families can afford because you're not thinking about it so you need to have you know every single voice in that room when they're making decisions and I think that's why diversity is so important yeah it, it just makes sense right I also wanted to go back to another point that you brought up around how people often don't see entertainment as important as like other things going on in the world. Can we explore that a little bit? Like, why do you think that is? And like, what do you think the importance of that entertainment is, especially to like the younger generations? 
Well, I mean, traditionally, entertainment is just that form of escapism, isn't it? It's one of those things where it's there to make you feel temporarily happy. It takes you away to this new world that doesn't really exist. Um, it takes you away from your current problems and things like that. So it's almost this fictional industry that doesn't really exist. And, you know, everyone in there are actors. They're not real. They don't have those struggles that they portray in movies and things like that. So therefore, there's that that um, concept of, you know, the entertainment industry is there to make imaginary things look real, to take you away from real life. At least that's how I see it from the traditional viewpoint. But at the same time, everyone's watching TV. Everyone's going to watch uh, films most people nowadays are on some form of social media platform consuming media. So it's not just this imaginary thing that's not real, that kind of takes you away from life. It's literally what you're consuming every single day and you're learning, you're kind of absorbing the mindsets, the values that these entertainment industries and media industries are portraying. You know, when you watch films that are 100% white, it must be because they didn't think black actors were talented enough. What is that saying to the black community? You know, back in the day, like going far back into like the 50s, where uh, Asian characters were whitewashed. Why? Because Asians aren't good enough to play themselves. <laughs> you know, what kind of messages are you really portraying, especially when you know there's going to be all these people consuming that message. And, you know, that's why I think it's really important to, to really shift how things are done. And that's why, you know, for example, with, and I'll use Marvel movies because I think that's the only thing that is currently doing right by people uh, with, you know, Black Panther. The Black Panther movie had predominantly a Black cast and, rightfully so because the characters are all black and you know it appealed so far and wide to not just people in the US and the UK but in Africa and Asia everyone just went nuts for that movie because it was representation of of themselves on screen it made it possible for them to go ah oh, for example Chadwick Boseman is is a black actor look how far he's come in his career if he can do it I can. And now with Shang-Chi with, you know, all these up and coming movies like Miss Marvel would be the next one that I think is going to cause waves because she's a Pakistani superhero, a Muslim superhero. I mean, the media currently, right, if you think about it, how do they portray Muslims? They're usually terrorists. They're terrible people. Look at their laws, you know, are they uh, condemn their wives to be in the back and never in the front and things like that. But hey, now you've got this Muslim superhero who has amazing powers. She's funny. She's, you know, quirky. She's doing all these great things to save a majority of human beings. Oh, so she's not a terrorist. So, you know, that's why I think entertainment is so important because when you do it right, you really help change human nature. And it reaches so many people as well because not everyone is able to 
be educated on the same level. They're not able to be in touch with the same sort of like resources and platforms that some others are. And so being able to see that representation, to see that it's like normal is really Mm. important in popular media and entertainment. Was it us when we were chatting about how when we were younger, we wanted to act and like sing and stuff, (laughs) but because like we didn't see anybody who looked like us. And when Simu Liu, he's become like his, his stardom has just skyrocketed and Mm -hmm. it just, it makes me feel so positive and like happy that younger generations are going to have him as like a role model and not Mm -hmm. just him, but like, there's more and more like people of color being put into the spotlight now and actually having their stories told. Exactly. And and it's amazing to not feel like there's a barrier against you doing what you love. And I think that's not just for kids, it's for adults as well. I mean, when I'm not East Asian by any means, I'm Southeast Asian. But when I saw um, Shang-Chi first get announced, I literally backflip. Well, not quite literally. I can't backflip. I'm too old. My back's sore. Uh, you know, but, you know, I did a figurative backflip because I was like, oh my gosh, people are going to look at, you know, Asians or rather East Asians in this case more favorably because, you know, I mean, Simulu is attractive, you know, he's not just your skinny Asian boy who Nerdy. just fell into these places. Yeah, you know, yeah. he's not the sidekick. He's not uh, the guy who's, you know, just the butt of every joke kind of thing. Here's a serious actor who's playing a serious role and is doing so well. And I love seeing the box office numbers and all the ratings because it shows that when you do a film right and you do right by people, you will make money (laughs) and the film will do well. I mean, I was just having a conversation today with someone where um, a Forbes article was criticizing Shang-Chi because it was, you know, oh, maybe it was because it's an Asian film. It didn't do as well. And it's like, we're in a pandemic, firstly. It beat out Black Widow in a pandemic. So doesn't that mean it's actually successful? <laughs> and it's also, you know, 99% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which beat out all the Avengers films, which came out before the pandemic. So what are you on about? It's not successful. So it's that kind of media uh, exposure is so bad as well because it's kind of painting a narrative that's not true, firstly. And secondly, it's that, hey, why are you putting your, your blinkers on and just keeping yourself in this narrow little path of thinking instead of going, look at how much good this movie is doing? Yeah, totally. And I know some people, like some more cynical people are kind of like, oh, like in terms of making money, they're going to see how much money it makes. And then that's Mm -hmm. the reason that motivates these big movie companies to put more diversity into their films. But well, yes, there is like a business case for it, but more representation is like more representation, right? Like, well, I mean, you know, with, um, Obviously, with a Marvel film, as a Marvel fan, if it's all just going to be your stock standard range of actors, yes, I'll still watch it. Um, So I'm not going to lie, I'll still watch it. But with a movie like Shang-Chi, had lockdown not been a thing, I would have watched it five times in the cinema because I want to watch it multiple times to support the movie. I'm willing to pay all this money to show its support and then maybe even buy it on Disney Plus because 
it needs that support. I'm willing to do that because I'm Asian. This is an Asian movie. I want to support Asian actors and Asian uh, directors and you know people who work behind the scenes who are Asians. And if that means that the higher ups and the bigger studio producers see the money coming in and go, oh, if we put more Asians in films, the Asians will come and pay us money. That's a good thing. Then I'm all for it because that's what will happen. You put a Indian superhero, the whole of India will come out. And there I mean, are just, many people in India. Exactly. I mean, look at Kamala Harris, right? This uh, vice president in the United States. When she was, um, I guess, put up and put forward as being the vice president and then got elected to be vice president, literally the whole of South India went, oh my God, we don't care about America, but we care that we have an Indian woman in the, technically the highest office that she could possibly get into. And now if something happens to Biden, she will be in the highest office. And what does that mean? Not just, it's not just Asia. It's not, sorry, it's not just India. It's Southeast Asia because there's so many Indians there. It's A and Z because there are so many Indians here. There, It's uh, the UK because there's so many Indians there. It's the whole worldwide community of Indian people would just go, I will throw you money to support you, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I really hope that's the case. And I really hope that, I guess, yeah, big studio executives just go, you know what, let's, let's do the right thing and money will come in. Because at the end of the day, that's, that's what it is, right? You Most of the time, like I go with the approach of if you're a nice person and if you're a kind person, you give people kindness and show kindness to others, you get things back tenfold. Not not that I expect anything back, but that's just the way life tends to work. Like when you focus on so much negativity, when you focus on competitiveness, when you're putting people down, when you're feeling really, I guess, frustrated at another person. Granted, I have felt a lot of that in lockdown because of people not following the rules. But naturally, when you when you show love to another person, it makes you feel good. It makes them feel good. And then just the world feels nicer and, and a much better place to live. So I think, you know, if more of us do that, I really do think that all of us collectively can be successful together as opposed to one person being successful and everyone else has to kind of be in the sidelines struggling. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, going on from that, what does the ideal world look like in terms of gaming? Do you think that there will ever be a point where you will be like, yes, I'm happy with all the women or, like, all the BIPOC um, mm-hmm. who are in the gaming world? Or or what, what, what do you think the end goal is, or is there even an end goal? I don't think there's an end goal because I think it's always going to be a constantly evolving thing depending on, you know, who's out there in the world and in the gaming community specifically. There's constantly more and more different genders coming about, different uh, people who identify as different things. So I don't want to say like, yes, there's an end goal and that end goal is once we reach um a majority of minority groups in the gaming community because it's always going to be a changing thing. But I think that, you know, it's, we'd be on the right track if, for example, when you see sponsored content and brands working with um, content creators, for example, 
you see that there's a breadth of variety in terms of and, and diversity in terms of who they're working with. Having those that variety and that diversity is going to be something that's always going to help change the game continuously. And so I really think the marketing, the advertising, everything needs to be more open to everyone, I suppose, if that's the right word, um, and diverse. I think it's it's really going to be a challenge, obviously, especially here in Australia and New Zealand, because brands still, despite talking about Black Lives Matter mattering to them and Asian violence mattering to them and pride mattering to them, you don't see it after the, the event or after it stops trending. And I'm constantly battling brands and, and the people in brands because it's like, well, why? Why do you even bother putting it? It's also performative when you have the resources and the tools to really help make the space better. I think a lot of people do hate me as a result because I'm constantly <laughs> battling them and just being like, hey, but have you thought about this person? Or, hey, have you thought about doing it this way? And hello, look at my Twitter. This is what I talk about. <laughs> you know, it, it is a common problem. But, you know, at the end of the day, if no one likes me because I'm trying to do the right thing, then that's a problem with them, not me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> totally their problem. And I, yeah, it's so great to hear that you are speaking up and pushing back against and, you know, like agitating for change. Well, um, thank you so much for joining me today and having this conversation with me. Um, it's been really, really enlightening to learn about your work and learn about everything that you're advocating for. And it's, yeah, it's just really great to see someone like you pushing for that change in these industries. So thank you. Thank you, Brad. Thank you for listening to this episode. Diana and I actually found out we had so much in common that we ended up jumping on another call about a week later to just chat. And I think we ended up speaking for about four hours. I even baked some chocolate chip cookies in the meantime. <laughs> These random coincidences are really amazing and I'm so appreciative of the time she gave for this podcast episode. Remember, if you liked this episode, please rate and share as well as follow along on Instagram and Facebook if you haven't done so already. Just search for Not Your Token Minority Podcast. Mm-hmm.